Hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm going okay. How are you? Good, good. This is too cool for school. It really is. <laughs> and so, it's nice to, uh, just so, in case this ever went out, it'd be nice for <laughs> people to have someone other to look at than me. Uh, so that's that's nice. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I actually think this, I think based on the content that I'm going to talk about, I think this could be a public um, but I'll, I'll see. I'm not going to like self censor or anything. But, but excellent. Um, I think I, I'd, I'd feel comfortable with it being uh, released, some at least some level. But so yeah, uh, should I start in? Or? Yeah. So yeah, I've I've been having trouble processing over the past week uh, the email that I shared with you, um, the one that my parents sent me last Tuesday. Do you want to uh, read it? Yeah, I'll do that. I've got it up. Greg, we realize you asked us not to communicate with you, but we just wanted to let you know that we are available anytime you want to talk to us about how we have disappointed you. If your happiness means that we cannot be in your life at this time, we respect your wishes and hope that changes at some point in the future. We do hope you will tell us how you are feeling and what we can do to be more supportive parents for you. With our love always, Mom and Dad. Right, right. And uh, what provoked. is, I mean, you, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying the feeling that, that was the predominant feeling after I read that was really guilt was the, the longest lingering feeling, although anger was the strongest feeling, but that subsided and let the guilt linger, if that makes sense. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, do you have thoughts about why you may be feeling that, um, what uh, what do you think are the thoughts behind the feelings? Yeah, I was thinking about that last night uh, particularly, although the thoughts have been there all week. Um, the past, well, last night I, I just kept getting especially this image of this couple shaken up by this loss and just holding hands and waiting for their son to return, right? And it's... Right. That's not, that's not a happy image to have, and it's it's creating these feelings of um, that I'm the hurtful one in this interaction. Sure, sure, sure. And um, what are your thoughts about that? Those thoughts. Uh, well, I, I I don't think that they are particularly evidence based based on what I know from my past and even the more present interactions with them. Um, but it still is enough to create this ambivalence. Sure, sure. Well, it's, uh, I mean, I you know for people watching this, this is going to sound all cold, all kinds of cold and heartless, but I know uh, quite a bit about the history of your family, and this is a very clever letter. Right? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's exquisite, right? I mean, in terms of its uh, its delicacy and uh, all of the stuff that is not said, and the surface uh, quote rationality, and I mean, it's very, it's a very sophisticated letter. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's very. So, what did you feel when you when you first read it? Uh, what was your initial feeling? Let me think. Uh, well. When I first saw the email in the box, anxiety, and then when I read it, sadness. I'm sorry. Can you just copy it into the chat here so that I can uh, can have a look at it as well? 
Thank you. Absolutely. So it was anger, uh, and then it was sadness, right? Um, anxiety. Uh, when anxiety. I first saw the email, like in the box before I even read it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's like someone uh, is sending me an email, and it's not likely to be positive uh, to me, right? Right. Right. Okay. Right. And then you felt anger, is that right? Yes. And the anger was specifically towards the what we can do to be more supportive parents, as if they're at a base of 50% supportive, but they right. just need to be increased to... Uh, and then sadness, and then the sadness turned into the guilt, which has been the lingering feeling. And the guilt, the reason I wanted to talk to you was the guilt has been making it harder to reassess my anger and sadness over the past few days. Well, sure, that's what guilt is for. I mean, that's why people use it, because it is, uh, it is a very large antidote to, to anger, for sure. Because guilt is anger at the self, right? Guilt is anger turned inwards at yourself which is that I've done something wrong, I'm cold, I'm heartless, uh, I'm selfish. Uh, um, guilt arises from uh, what is portrayed in relationships as a win-lose situation, right? So uh, you obviously uh, have heard of the concept of sacrifice in relationships before, right? That, uh, that, that, that when you have children, you, you, you sacrifice, um, you know, you, your kids' needs here on the left, your kids are elevated, your kids' needs are elevated, and your needs are, are put down, and, and it's a win-lose situation, right? Like you sacrifice in the same way that you may not want to go to work, but you go to work because you want to eat, you're making those sacrifices. So it, it guilt arises when it is a, a perception has occurred in relationships that it can't be win-win, right? That, oh, sorry about that. We just, we just went all kinds of south, but it's okay. We're cutting edge. So um, uh, was the was the video lost or? No, I think it's still there. Um, but okay. so uh, the last so, thing I heard you say. Oh, sorry. Well, it's to say that, that guilt guilt arises from a perception in a relationship that when one person, I guess this is on your right, yeah, when one person uh, is providing goodies, the other person is receiving them, right? And so there's this implicit flow of goodies from one person to the other, right? Flow of goodies from one person to the other. Guilt is when this relationship is set up and then when it's time for reciprocity, we don't give back. And then we feel that we are not providing a just recompense for sacrifices which were made for us in the past. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, that does make sense that it creates this, this hierarchy that's and it's not symmetrical. Right, because if our parents say to us, "Yes, if there were tough times when, when you know, there were tough times when you were a kid, and uh, you know, you, you were up at night, you had scurvy or you know whatever, right? like there were tough times, but but it was never a loss for me, right? Like I mean, I don't run free domain radio and say, you bastard thieving listeners, it's you know all a sacrifice and you owe me your kidneys, right? I mean, yeah, there's times where a philosophical conversation is tough. Uh, this is not this call, but this month being one of them, but. I would never portray it as a sacrifice. I mean, that's just a pride issue. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm no victim. I'm not uh, at anybody's beck and call that way. So 
I throw myself into the relationship with the listeners and into the Free Domain Radio conversation with, you know, with great joy and passion, and I feel incredibly privileged to do this. So it's not I'm sacrificing anything for the listeners. I quit my career. I gave up everything for you people, and now you owe me whatever, right? So uh, right. and and with parents, it's like yeah, there were tough times when you were a kid, but we had children because we wanted children. Uh, we hope that uh, our parenting of you was something that was you know doesn't always have to be perfect and always perfectly enjoyable, but is is rich and and is exciting and and so on, right? So, but guilt is when you are given the the uh, the, the perception that resources have been given to you at somebody else's expense, and then. Something has flipped, and you owe them something back. And if you, when you fail to give that back to them, then it is considered to be a dishonor, right? Like, like I lent you a thousand dollars, and now you owe me a thousand dollars back, and you're just not paying it, you thieving rat bastard, right? Right, right, right. And so that is um, that. That certainly, I mean, that's the first thing to understand about guilt, right? I mean, that it is the. Uh, uh, it, it is the self-attack that comes from the, the perception that you owe somebody something in a just manner, but you don't want to give it to them. And so then it's like, well, why don't I want to give my parents back their just, quote, desserts? I mean, in a positive way, right? Uh, you know, if, if Christina buys me something wonderful, my wife, for my birthday, which she does, um, then why is it that I would not want to buy something for her birthday? Well, because... I'm selfish, uh, I'm a taker, I'm, you know, there's always intense negative pejoratives that are, that are associated with uh, this failure to reciprocate in terms of, of relationships. And uh, the, so, so your perception of you, the reason it turns into a self-attack is because you, you feel, and this is my thought, and tell me if it makes sense or not, but you feel deep down that, that you kind of owe them something and you're dishonorably not not paying it, right? Yeah, yeah, that does ring a bell. I mean, that's what religion is founded on, right? I mean, God loves you, Jesus died for your sins, so you owe him, sucker, right? <laughs> and it's the same thing with the state. Uh, and uh, this is what Socrates said about the state, that the state validated his marriage, his parents' marriage, and gave him birth, and he owes allegiance, and, and you know, because it's a democracy, we owe the government. I mean, it's this idea that we simply owe people for obligations that we never voluntarily incurred. And of course, when we're born to parents, it is not a choice of ours, it is a choice of theirs. And how they raise us is not a choice of ours because we are children and we are helpless and we are dependent, but it is a choice of theirs. And it is, I mean, people do this all the time, and I'm sorry to give you a big lecture, but I just want to put it in context before we go back to oh, how you no, feel. No, no. But people do this all the time, right? They're trapped in their relationships, you know, like their, their, their wife is a taker or their husband is a taker, they're victims. They're, and, and all of this is about like I give and I'm not getting back. But if you give to get back, that itself is selfish, which is why you're able to make other people selfish because feel selfish because it's a projection, right? Um, I don't buy Christina a birthday present so that she will buy me a birthday present. It's not an obligation that I'm creating for her because if it were, it wouldn't be generous. It would just be a boomerang, right? I throw, I get back. Uh, so uh, it, the spirit of true generosity is to give and not uh, with the intention or with conscious or unconscious with the intention of creating an obligation on the part of the person you're giving to because then it's not generosity, right? Then it's just a form of manipulation. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. My, my wife can leave me tomorrow. My wife can 
Um, my wife can go anywhere that she wants. She can go and do anything. She can divorce me. She can do whatever she wants. She's not obligated to stay with me in any way, shape, or form. The fact that I, you know, am madly in love with her and devoted to her in no way requires that she is that way in return to me. Because then it would be kind of like a grappling hook that I would be sinking into her flesh to reel her in, you know, like a winch cable on the back of a truck or something. And that's not uh, that's not the case. I, I, I love her because she is wonderful, and I take pleasure in her company. And uh, you know, it's certainly my hope that she continues to feel the same way about me. But my passion for her is no obligation to her whatsoever. And this is very different from a parent-child relationship because at least she was sucker enough to foolishly get married to me. So not the case with children who are born to, to parents. They have no choice in the matter, no choice in how they're raised, usually. So this, this is the first thing to understand, that, that guilt fundamentally is a feeling of self-attack that comes from feeling like you owe someone something and you're just selfishly, you're a selfish taker and you're just not paying it back. Does that and, and so after that speech, just tell, tell me what you, what you think about that. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense with regards to the, um, the imbalance. Because uh, looking back on how I felt after the email, uh, when, when they phrased it, uh, or it was actually written by my dad because it was from his email address, but when I'm sure they talked about it, um, how we have disappointed you so that – already frames sorry. it as... It's not funny. I'm sorry. It just is. It's not funny. Oh. I, I'm sorry. I'm laughing because it's so transparently manipulative, which doesn't mean that it's easy to receive and it doesn't mean that I don't sympathize. But from the outside, it's just like, ew, you know? It's like that Ghostbusters thing. Right. Like, whap, I just got slimed. But sorry, go on. Oh, sure. Well, what, what, what struck me when you were talking about that was the... Uh, if they frame it as they have disappointed me and I defoob because they've disappointed me, they didn't buy me that extra pair of sneakers when <laughs> right. I was growing up, um, oh. as Greg G. put it. Um, then, then what I'm doing is horribly unjust. If what they did was funny, was right? sorry. Oh, if all uh, if all they did was to me, and I and what I'm then what I'm doing is unjust, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, most times when you, um, when you confront people in your life with your needs, uh, the, uh, it's, it's hard, almost, almost hard to blame them in a sense because it's such an automatic response because of the amount of corruption in the culture as a whole. But automatically the response will come back, I didn't mean it, uh, I didn't intend it, I'm sorry that you're upset or disappointed or bothered by something. And what happens is people then will take the approach like you're some kind of bizarrely wired trigger bomb and, and, and they don't know what sets you off and, and they have to kind of, I don't know, like, like dance around you or try to figure out the combination that's going to open you up without getting you weirdly crazy angry. Like you become a tinfoil hat person to them for some reason, you know, like um, don't mention 9-11, <laughs> you know, like those people, right? And so they right. then have to portray you as somebody who's just irrationally angry. They have fundamentally no idea what, what they could conceivably have done to make you this angry or upset or, or, or like who knows. But, but they love you so much that they will, they will do their best to listen to whatever insane shit is making you so angry. And they will 
try to find some way to appease you like some crazy villain in a bad soap opera, you know, like just pay him the money, you know, just get him, you know, whatever, right? And that's sort of what I get um, from that, right? Uh, it disappointed you. It's not the issue is not disappointment. The issue was abuse, right? Right, right. And if they say we have no idea, they're basically backing up the dump truck of pure crazy, right? Raising it and dumping it all on you, right? Right, right. And uh, to be more supportive parents is also like they are, as you say, they are supportive, maybe 50 or 60 percent. But you're so irrationally demanding that anything less than perfect 150 percent support and they're out of your life completely. Right. And so, again, you're this ticking weird time bomb that they they just have to kind of appease and dance around because you're just so nutty and volatile. Right. Okay, we don't know how we could have been more supportive, but. But but tell us and we'll try to try to meet your crazy standards just to make you happy because we love you, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, and but I don't know. That triggered something in me that it's is that projection because they did have crazy standards that were impossible to meet. Oh yeah, yeah. So this is all projection. There's nothing about you in this letter at all. This is all projection. This is all manipulation and projection. And this is, you know, the confirmation letters we get from the Defu experience are all fabulous confirmations of exactly why we're doing what we're doing. I mean, if, if that's the road that has to be taken, and it is ne never a fun road, and it's not a road that anybody takes li even remotely likely, uh, it is a horrible, horrible road in the short run. But whatever we get in terms of communication, I mean, this is, uh, this is a, you know, perfect confirmation as to why you did what you did. Because what are they saying? Nothing happened. We did nothing wrong. That you have irrational standards of perfection. That it is merely the fact that you're disappointed that is causing you to have some sort of insane diva hissy fit and kick us out of your life. And we'd love to be more supportive, though we don't know how, because we don't know we don't even know how we weren't supportive in the past. I mean, all of this is hey, nothing happened. We're perfect. You're the crazy one. There's so right. much anger. There's so right. much anger in this email that I mean, it's it's pissing me off, and I'm not even in your family. Right, just a bunch of of bubbling rage under the surface. Yeah, I mean, do they seriously have no idea? If they were given a million dollars, could they seriously not? At all? I mean, you've talked to them about your complaints. You've explained it to them. You've, you've been uh, trying to be open with them. They were there. They remember. They're not senile. They don't have mad cow. They're not demented. So if somebody dangles a million dollars in front of them, and they would have absolutely no idea what your complaints are about the abuses in your family. Yeah. yeah and I mean, and even as some of the... Uh, most volatile stuff since my childhood occurred months ago. Right? It's not like they have to go even very far back. Yeah, your dad is screaming at you and, and you know doing all this monstrous, horrible stuff a couple of months ago. Right. And they're like, well, um, maybe we were just somehow not perfectly supported for this crazy, insane, massively high-standard fellow, this weird child who gets upset for nothing, right? Like, once more, they're throwing you under the fucking bus, right? 
Once more, your reality, your history, your needs are completely sacrificed for their own selfish defenses, right? Right, right. We will do course. anything to make you happy, they say, right? But that sure as Sherlock was not the story not two or three months ago. Sorry, go ahead. Right. Yeah, and I think a, a, a sense of guilt that I'm getting is also that my brother, as I mentioned before, is probably getting ten times this story from them. Sure. Sure, but why is that uh, – why, why does that make you feel guilty? I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just what, – what's the, what's the connection there? I don't know. I just don't like the idea that he's – well, he did say the other day he doesn't like being in the middle of this. Sure. Well, it's a very tough position for him, but it's not you who's making it tough. It's your parents. And, and should your brother get an example that you don't ever stand up to bad people, that you don't ever fight for your own space, that you don't ever stand up for what is, uh, what is just and decent, honorable and, and respectful uh, being, being treated in that way? Is that, is that the example that you just shut up and take it? I mean, the example that you're giving to him is a clear exit path to a highly dysfunctional and destructive family. And your only other option is to hang around and pretend that nothing's wrong which is going to give him completely messed up signals, right? That's, that's very true, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the sibling thing is, yeah, is so. I mean, I don't want to diminish it because I know it's not easy and there's no, I mean, what it was like six months ago, I had to go back and talk to my wife once more about my nieces, right? And that's not even as close as, as your brother. So I understand that that's not easy, but we don't want to end up taking the fall for the corrupt and, and, and false behavior of others. And when you see someone stand up in your life and simply not put up with abusive treatment anymore, for sure you're going to have all of the, the bullshit that the abusers are going to come up with is going to come spraying all over the place, right? But you have an example which you didn't have before, which is somebody saying, this is optional and this is not satisfactory to me. I can't reason with these people. I can't uh, have my needs, which are completely reasonable, met, which is, you know, no screaming, no name-calling, no abuse, uh, no verbal abuse, and so on. I can't get my needs met. They won't, reason, they won't listen to reason, and therefore, um, I don't need to stay in this relationship. Life is short, and I'm not going to sit there and have my um, personality, ego, and, and self torn down by crazy, irrational bastards. He has that example in his life now, and... It, it only takes one for the possibility to exist and for the option to become real. Right, right. So I guess I'll, I'm meeting with him on Friday in person for, for the first time I've, since the Defu. So right. uh, I'll have to see how, the, how that goes. And I guess this will be trust my instincts and... Well, the best thing you this. can do, and sorry, the best thing you can do with regard to this is simply listen to him. Because he's yeah. getting a forceful wave of, of corrupt and propagandistic mythology from the parents, right? It's like, it's like a tsunami. It's endless. And you sure as heck don't want to be a countervailing you know, set of, of, of stories. And I'm not saying that yours would be stories, but, but to him, right, it's like, shit, they're coming at me this way, they're coming at me this way. What you want to not be is the guy coming at him this way, but just say, you know, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? Not what are my parents saying, right? But how are you thinking? I mean, this must be tough for you. Just be completely open to his experience because he's saying, I'm caught in the middle here. And it's you, the parents, and so don't be that other side of the sandwich, right? 
just just right. to talk to him, listen to him, and and absorb what he's going through without explaining or justifying yourself, without you know what are they saying about me kind of thing, but just you know and and sympathize with. Now, if he asks you questions, of course, right? But but I think he's in a place where uh, clearly your parents are more than willing to erase your history and your experience in order for their own uh, petty defenses to to function. Therefore, they are going to be doing that, as you say, even more so with your brother. So he's in a, in a place where he's getting uh, propagandized and not being listened to. And I think that what you want to do is listen to him to take some of that pressure off of the unreality that is kind of washing over him. Yeah, I mean, about the uh, tidal wave you were talking about, I do have, I mean, he and I talk on the phone about every day he calls me or I call him. Or actually, I will send him a text message saying it's okay to call because I want to make sure he's out of the house. But if he's out of the house and he wants to talk, he'll call me. Oh, and, good. Okay. Um, he actually he actually did say um, that my dad will just come into his room several times an evening and just sit there. Sure. And and he walked in one time, dad, my dad did, and said, I don't want you listening to that Stefan Molyneux guy. Right. Well, I mean, from your dad's perspective, that is that is perfectly right. I mean, he can't go back and be a better father. That that ship has sailed years ago. Right. He can't go back and be a non-abusive father. He can't go back and give you guys a better or a different childhood. Right. So given that that's impossible, I mean, he can't pay back the money he stole. So, of course, he's going to say, don't listen to theories of property rights. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Right? Right, I mean, right. that's the only strategy that he's got left, right? And um, uh, if, if he were – see, I mean, it's far too late now for, for him with regards to you or your brother because once you have made the decision to that, that you're not going to put up with, with negativity or abuse in a relationship and you've, you've taken the steps to, to make your needs known and, and you've tried to, to deal with it in an honorable and open fashion, once, once that – ship a sail, then you've said, okay, well, this isn't going to work, and so on. If the person only changes then, it doesn't work, right? Because if, if right, they say, right, okay, right. well, if you're going to leave me, then I'll change, then they're basically saying, well, I could have changed. It's just that I'm not going to change for you. I'm only going to change if you're going to leave me, which is fundamentally for me. It doesn't break the selfish pattern at all, right? But they're still admitting that they right. could change. It's just that your misery and your broken downedness was just no motivation for them to change. But now that their own interests are being threatened by God, they can find it in themselves to change. Well, that's why it doesn't once. That's why ultimatums never work in relationship. Because if somebody's going to accede to your requests only because of an ultimatum, it means that they still don't care about you fundamentally at all. Right. Right. So if your dad were to say now, yeah, I guess I was a, you know, did these bad things. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to change. It's like, well, I guess that's great for you, but my childhood is dusted and done, right? So it doesn't go back and change anything in the past. So if you want to do it, you know, that's fantastic, but it doesn't have anything to do with changing what happened to me because that doesn't, that's not going to happen. And it's only, even if he did say all of that, it would only be because the uh, outside integrity of, or the appearance of the integrity of his family was threatened, and that was a negative consequence for him. That's very true, yeah. And and I do know for almost almost for sure that no one outside my family that I haven't told, like other than a few friends that I've that I've told, no one knows yet. I mean, they haven't told 
they haven't mentioned anything outside family. I don't even know if my grandparents know. Oh, sure. I, I think it took Christina's parents at least a year and close to 18 months to for people to even bring it up as an issue or a topic. Because they hope. They hope that they're not going to have to talk about it with anyone and you're just going to come back. You're magically going to reappear. And, oh, I'm sorry and I went too far. And yes, it is a cult over there at Freedom and blah, 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 right? What can I do to make it up? That's the fantasy that they live with. And that's why I'm constantly urging parents, be proactive in stepping up and fixing the mess that you've made in your family. Be proactive because if your kids have to do it, you're done. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, as you can see, uh, what you were saying was really bringing back a lot of the sadness. That Yeah, tell me what you're feeling. Enough about yeah. my waffle burger. But, uh... oh, well, well, when you were talking about that this letter is a confirmation of what what really what happened in the past and an erasure of my past, just this tremendous wave of sadness came up because it it really is. It really is a confirmation that there's there's no This is not a grope, but there's a hug. no way Oh thanks. But go on. That there's just no way their email could have been any different. No. No. I mean, it's the the email is what it was. It was, uh, and it goes back to what you were saying. I think a week ago on one of our private conference calls late night, when we were talking about that you don't leave, you don't ban people really because you're angry. You leave because you're bored, and yeah. and this is an example of just a boring ass defense, right? Yeah. I, I couldn't have predicted it from my situation just because it's my situation, but I'm sure if I would have said, hey, Steph, do you have any idea what the first email back from them would have been? You probably could have, from what you know about my history, guessed. Yeah, I mean, either, if they felt that you would be open to bullying, then it would have been a bullying and angry one. Clearly, the, the way that you exited was enough to, to help them understand that you meant business. And so they go to the backup defense, which is uh, erasure of you, uh, manipulation and self-pity. Right. And in a way, I, I would have preferred, and they, they knew this, I'm sure, I would have right. preferred the, God damn it, you fucking asshole, why the heck do you have to do this to our family in this time of need, or sort of stuff like that. I mean, that would have been easier to right. work through. It's like, oh, screw you, right? Like, Right. But, right. But, but this they... is like, Go on. oh, this is the full-on telling me I'm the bad one without being obvious enough to say you're the bad one. Sure, absolutely. And, and I mean, your parents aren't stupid. I mean, obviously, you come from highly intelligent uh, gene pool. Uh, your parents aren't stupid, and uh, whatever it is that's going to be the hardest for them, uh, for you, sorry, is, is what they're going to do. I mean, that's just and, – and there was no chance of anything else because – I mean, it's what people don't understand, and I've, I've said this before. I've just mentioned it again, right? That, I mean, this is this is more to the parents who end up watching this than anything else. That that your soul can die, you know. Like, I mean, if you smoke enough, you get lung cancer. You can't be cured. And if you continue to do bad things to your children, uh, to to uh, inflict your will on them, to not listen to them, to to ignore them, to to control them, to disrespect them. Um, your soul will die. You won't be able to come back. You won't be able to turn around. You know, after a certain amount 
of eating straight sugar, you're going to get diabetes. Now, even if you stop, you still got that. I mean, if you, you, you can't change it after a certain amount of time. Uh, if your arteries are clogged, sometimes you're just going to have that heart attack. And it's the same thing with your soul and your relationships, that if you continue to pile abuse and, and uh, neglect and control and downgrading other people in your life, you simply will be unable to recover from it. And that's why they're beyond the point of no return, probably by years and years. Uh, and there's just no possibility of any other kind of response. But um, uh, still, we, we hope and we cross our fingers that parents will turn it around. And we've seen a few do it, um, or at least we'll, we'll try and do it. Oh, did we lose it? Okay. Oh, so sorry about that. No, no, no problem at all. It's, uh, we're, we're cutting edge, maybe. So, um, yeah, so I was just saying that uh, we, we hope that people will do it before too late. But, you know, Tolstoy said that uh, every happy family is alike, but every unhappy family is uh, unhappy in its own particular way. And as you can see, I mean, that's not the case. I mean, happy families and happy people have a great degree of, of variety. But unhappiness, defensiveness, victimization, self-pity, manipulation, it's just the same fucking script over and over and over again. It's like stimulus response. You might as well program it into a computer. And uh, I think that's what you mean when you say there's nothing that's going to be new for, for me here. There's just going to be defensiveness and manipulation and self-justification on the part of my parents. And there's no room for me in that in that kind of uh, psychodrama, right? Right. And, and after the spontaneity I've experienced with people here at FDR, it's like, why would I ever want any of that defensiveness again? Right, right. right. I mean, just by why the do by. I, why and, do I want to? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, Sorry. Oh, no, you go ahead. Saying, why would I want to talk to why would I want to talk to Eliza on the computer, right? <laughs> right. When I can talk to these real people. Right. I was just um, listening to a radio show uh, uh, today, uh, this morning, where they were talking about how the kids, kids, uh, kids these days. Don't I sound young? Were, they're watching like like they're spending six hours a day in front of a screen of one kind or another. But this is good, this one. But, uh, you know, computers or video games, televisions and so on, six hours a day. And so the radio show host was, and everyone was called, the parents were calling in and saying, you know, turn them off, you know, just throw the Xbox out the window, you know, dump the Wii down, down uh, the incinerator or something like that. And, I mean, what a load of crap. What a load of crap. That's always the case that people have when it comes to competition, and this comes to your relationship to philosophy, right? The parents always have, uh, sorry, people always have this knee-jerk reaction when it comes to competition, right? So um, someone's underselling you in business, you want to run to the government and ban that person from coming into your market, right? You don't want to up your game. You don't want to improve your uh, processes to compete more successfully. It's just like, let's shut that person out and retain this monopoly, right? And so... I didn't call in because, I mean, nobody would even understand what I was saying, or maybe they would but wouldn't like it. But um, for me, it's like if your kids are watching video games, uh, playing video games, watching TV and being on the computer for six hours a day, and you don't like that, then shutting it all off is completely petty and ridiculous. What you want to do is uh, compete more successfully with the video games by being a more interesting and engaging parent. I mean – it's, you don't just shut out competitive elements. What you do is you say, okay, this is going to require that I up my game to the point where I'm going to re-engage my children and they're going to prefer me to punching someone's virtual face on the Wii. But parents don't want to do that, right? They don't want to up their game and say, well, my kid's over there because he actually doesn't find my 
uh, my interaction or, or having a relationship with me to be that stimulating, he'd rather be racing a simulated car. So when it comes to simulated car versus interacting with me, uh, my kid goes to the simulated car. And so every asshole on the planet says, well, we should ban the simulated car or turn off the Xbox. And it's like, no. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's like saying, my wife is attracted to another man, so I'm going to lock her in the fucking basement. I mean, what a load of crap. If my wife is attracted to another man, why not? Why, I should be nicer. I should bring her flowers. I should up my game so that she is then more attracted to me rather than just locking her in the basement and saying, well, that's it. You can't see any other. I mean, if your kid doesn't like you to begin with and that's why he prefers spending time online or on the Xbox, then cutting those avenues off doesn't make you any more fun to be with and, in fact, makes you less fun to be with. And so you're actually working against yourself. But, of course, it's... You know, people are too traumatized from their own histories to figure that stuff out, right? So, and it's the same thing with your parents, right? I mean, rather than say, what is it that that Greg is getting from philosophy that he's not getting from us that we can bring to the relationship? What they do is say, don't you go listen to that philosophy. Right, right. I don't want to compete, they just want to ban competition, right? Yeah, and, and and I asked my brother why what what my dad said about Stefan Molyneux that that like if he knew about the family stuff and and my brother said yeah he says he's he he purposely breaks up families or something like that so certainly it 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 seems to be the 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 approach that Christina's parents are taking with you to to blame you sure and and it's. Oh, it's just it's gross and it's it does make sense given what you were saying that yeah uh, telling my brother me back when I was with them to not do this philosophy stuff anymore is totally not going to work because I asked my brother how he felt when when my dad said that he said really really angry because it because he doesn't trust me to make my own judgment about what I listen to or watch right. Right. And, and, you know, why don't these brave parents who have so much to say that is negative towards me, why don't they give me a call? I have Sunday shows that are open. This is what I do full time. I'm happy to take calls from parents if they want to. You know, if your dad wants to call me up man to man and, and, and chew me out for doing the, the bad things that I'm doing, you know, why does he go and pick on his 17-year-old uh, dependent son rather than a 41-year-old man who could listen to him and talk to him man to man where he doesn't have that kind of same uh, control, right? Why doesn't why doesn't he do that? If if I'm if I'm of such concern, why has you know only two parents have called me uh, in the entire time that I've been doing this, and within a month afterwards they both demanded that the podcast be removed because they didn't like how they sound, and one of them accused me of doctoring the podcast to make him sound worse. I mean, it's completely yeah, I... lunatic stuff, right? So. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to take the calls. You know, if you're a parent and you're out there and you see this and you feel that um, some anonymous guy on the Internet has more power over the fabric of your family than you do, that, that you who had, you know, primary care, custody and control and authority over your children for 20 or 30 years, that that bond and that central uh, relationship that I have some magical voodoo internet power to, to shatter the foundations of your family that, that otherwise would be as strong as the Rock of Gibraltar, then call me up. I'm more than happy to, to hear uh, how it is that I'm doing things wrong or doing things badly, but uh, I can certainly tell you that from where I sit, uh, it is not the case that some impassioned and reasoned arguments over the internet can shake the foundation uh, of a, a strong and positive union. 
You know, I mean, if uh, there's there's no podcast that could make me fall out of love with my wife. There's just no podcast, and there's no message board, and there's no group of uh, hate and hostiles out there who can make me give up my love of what it is that I'm doing. It's just not possible. So if it's so fragile that a podcast causes it to, quote, break, then you have to ask yourself, why was it so fragile to begin with? Not that I have some magic He-Man internet power to tear oaks asunder with my bare hand. Right, exactly, exactly. And, I mean, the reason they, they went to my brother instead of to you was obviously because you would have stood up to them. And my brother. Well, I certainly would have. You know, they don't have any power over me. Uh, but so I mean, stood up to them or not, I certainly would have listened, but I would not have been cowed by their power over me. Uh, and so that's why uh, all of these uh, heroes uh, just studiously avoid me, right? Right. right, right. Bully exactly. their own children rather than talk man to man to to a grown man who's independent from them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, sorry, come on. No, I was. Just saying, yeah. Now, how you? I, I didn't want to ride over your feelings, and that was a bit of a sort of tangential thing. And I just wanted to make sure that um, I got a sense of of where you were emotionally. Still, plenty of sadness, um, anger bubbling up, but there's something blocking the anger from quite being accessible. Well, tell me about the sadness. What's uh? What's going on there? Well, just just memories that are bubbling up when you're saying that. Like when you were talking about the telling kids not to, uh, like trying to ban video games or, or, or whatever, or install chips so that they only play a half-hour day or whatever the hell they make video games to do. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of a specific incident when I was, gosh, I couldn't have been older than 10, maybe 12 at the, at the onset of the highest. And my dad walked into my uh, computer room where I was sitting doing the computer, and he said, you know, you've been doing way too much computer recently. And right. You're just a monster. Right? He said, you're just a monster? Yeah, yeah. He said, you're just a monster about how much you do computer. He said, I just told Scott the same thing, and... And I, I just want you out riding bikes and, and doing more stuff than just doing computer. Right. And, of course, there's no curiosity. Tell them, help me understand what you get out of the computers. Help me understand what you like about them. Uh, and, and the reason, of course, that he doesn't like you being on the computer is because you're choosing to be on the computer rather than talk to him. And that makes him feel anxious and upset and irritated and guilty, of course, because he knows he's not the kind of parent that you're going to want to sit and chat with, right? Right, right. So because you're the making him feel bad, he's going to attack you, right? Right. It's the same concept in On Truth of you putting your head on your desk and the teacher yelling at you. Yeah. How old were you when this happened? I was thinking at the highest 12. Right. So this was just I around was, puberty, was right? pretty young. And this was just around puberty for you? Well, I was I was a little later than I was actually later than my younger brother when it came to puberty. Right. So, uh, but it was around the time that puberty would have been hitting. I think I ended up being around fourteen to fifteen. Right, right. No, no. And I just just ask because I'm apparently puberty lets you grow hair, so I'm still waiting for mine to kick in. Um, I'm no biologist, of course, uh, or doctor, but. Um, <laughs> 
But I mean, this this time when you're around 12 or so, of course, I mean, nothing in families is accidental, even when things happen, right? So at a time when you're going through, or you, you're approaching puberty, or puberty's in the air, sexuality, male sexuality's in the air, I mean, that's a time where you really need your dad, right? Right. Because you need to talk to him about manly parts and, you know, all of the things that's going on. The hormone onslaught is about to begin. Uh, guys are concerned, you know, how tall am I going to be? Am I, you know, whatever, what's, what's happening down there? And all of the stuff in terms of your feelings for girls. And so, I mean, all of that stuff is stuff you really need your dad for, right? And the fact that you were spending time, a lot of time on the computer rather than talking to your dad, uh, at this particular, at this crucial point in the development of your masculinity is, I mean, it's just heartbreaking, right? Oh, right. And I do remember... I mean, the first real, I mean, I know there were the young kindergarten crushes, but the first real, like, puberty crush that I had, I actually told my parents about. And I was nervous about telling, but I was kind of excited and having all these feelings. And I remember that was a source of constant ridicule for me for the next year. Like, like, how's, how are you and Margaret doing? Right? Like, oh, I'm uh, so sorry. that sort of stuff. Oh, I'm so sorry because the and, and I, yeah, go on. Oh, I was just thinking I've I've never told them since uh, obviously about any of that. I I really I haven't. I have very very minimal experience dating, and I think a lot of it's just the sense of ridicule of being vulnerable about feelings like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean the the um, I mean they call it puppy love and so on, but the first the first sexual or romantic attraction that you feel towards a girl is is hugely serious for a child. A hugely of course parents are all roll their eyes, it's so cute and they'll whatever diminish it, but it's not that way when you are going through it. I mean you feel a sense of devotion and reverence and and you know awe and 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 it's all highly charged and. I mean, parents need to help kids through that, and particularly fathers and sons. I mean, it happens with girls, but, I mean, that was your father's job. Uh, my, my own brother, um, I mean, I liked some girl who worked in a record store, so, of course, I'd go in and pretend to look for manly records rather than the Engelbert Humberdink and ELO that I was into at the time, <laughs> some thrash big ball metal or something, right? But. But, um, yeah, my brother came in, and uh, I was talking to this girl, and he came in, and he, he went up to my – he said – he went up to my – drew his finger across my chin and said, oh, Steph, wipe the drool off, why don't you? Right? I mean, and, and that – you know, when you're struggling to get through your shyness, and I was a very shy kid, when you're struggling to get through that, I mean, that kind of uh, humiliation uh, that, that people won't – when you're in that exquisitely vulnerable position, that is just people's – certain kinds of people's knee-jerk reaction, and it is completely tragic, right? I mean, I hope that you will not continue to let the humiliation of these bastards rob you of the openness and joy of uh, free expressions of love and attraction. Um, it's their pettiness, right, should not rule the future at expansiveness of your heart. Oh, right, right. Um, that That's very true. I mean, I, that's something I... Was working was working with a little with my therapist, and once I come back into therapy in a couple of weeks, um, I'm gonna definitely. And she said, actually, and this is a question that just as an aside I have for you. She recommended that I try a man therapist since I have a lot of issues being vulnerable with men. Is that does that sound like a decent idea to you? It could be. Um, I had a female therapist, uh, and that helped me a lot. Um, because some of my issues were to do with the fairer sex. I think, I think obviously, I mean, a competent therapist should win out 
over gender. I mean, because a competent therapist yeah. is going to be a lot more than the gender. Uh, if you have the choice between two between two equally competent therapists, I would think that, and, and this is very hard for me to judge because I grew up with no father. I never had a father around that I knew of, um, other than you know visits from time to time, which were just ridiculous and awkward. But uh, so I can't judge this very well. Um, so uh, because I didn't have a negative father imprint, so to speak, which is different from from what you experienced. So. I think that um, – I, I, I'm sorry. I, I really can't give you a, a, any judgment other than to say trust your gut because it's so far from what I had to deal with in sure. therapy um, that I, – I, sorry, I just don't think I would love to. I, you know, I love giving advice, but I just don't think I can give you anything good here. Oh, no, that's fine, and, and I do realize that I also have my fair share of mommy issues, right? So it's not like <laughs> I have – no, it's not like my mom. I don't. I don't have to work with uh, female issues because obviously a big part is also being vulnerable with women, right? They they kind of are two sides of the same coin, right? Because you you have a caution around self-expression, right? I mean, you're you play your cards a little close to your chest at times. I mean, I'm like a ridiculous emoto slut, right? So it's uh, it's sort of different for me. But I think for I mean, I and I wasn't always this way, but I sort of figured, you know, that that. I'd rather my heart hit the wall at 100 miles an hour than roll into it uh, at two miles an hour. So if it's going to go uh, splat, I want it to go splat in a big way. So I've always tried to sort of uh, be open and live extravagantly with my feelings, which gets me into a lot of trouble with people who think that's somehow the opposite of philosophy. But, I mean, that's certainly that, that wearing your heart on your sleeve is fundamentally an act of strength and confidence and is very attractive to people who are themselves confident and open-hearted. I think you are that way naturally, just based on having known you for a while, but I think that that challenge of opening your heart and living extravagantly and, and openly that way uh, is something that you want to have that freedom. It doesn't mean you always have to do it, but to have that freedom. And I think any authority figure that you work with who's going to be kind and supportive with you, I think is going to be, be helpful, whether it's a man or a woman. Right, right. I mean, uh, from my experience in therapy just now, I mean, this woman was fantastically supportive and really, uh, I mean, I think I, did, I went through more self-knowledge over the past, I think, two and a half months of therapy than I, than I really have in a long time, just because so much bubbled up and, and uh, just having a safe place to be vulnerable face-to-face -face with someone was just fantastic. Right, right. So. Well, I mean, I don't want to be Mr. Dentist and pull the sadness out of you, but, um, I mean, the sadness, I think, has to do with an acceptance of who your parents are because we all have this mad hope that we use to quash our grieving process, right? You know, they're, oh, yeah. they could change, therefore I don't actually need to give up hope, but I think that uh, the giving up of hope in these kinds of situations is, is accompanied with tremendous sadness because – it is that hope that has kept us going for so long and that hope that has actually been helpful for us as children in terms of keeping our capacity for bonding and positive thoughts with people, positive experiences with people. Giving up that hope is really, really painful. And there is a grieving process that occurs in the DFU that uh, it, it doesn't have to do with accepting that you're not going to see your parents again, but has to do with accepting that you never saw them and they never saw you. And I think that's the long ago ache that you're probably feeling. Yeah, because it's a pretty deep, it's it's not like the, um, it's not a surface sadness. It's very deep in my gut, and I, I feel it, and it takes a few minutes after I feel it 
to have it show up in my affect. Like, it, it really has to bubble up from my core. So I do think you're right that it's something deeper than just accepting that I'll never see them again, because that would be pretty surface. Yeah, and, and that would be about the future. This is about the past. Gertrude Stein. Oh, we lost him again. We'll come back. <laughs> all right, so we'll, we'll continue. It's all too exciting for words. I was going to say, Gertrude Stein, who was um, an American writer from, I think, the 1930s, 1940s, she had a very difficult relationship with her brother, and she wrote something about her brother that always sort of reminded me, uh, maybe about the feelings that you're feeling, certainly my experience of going through these feelings. Uh, she wrote about her brother. She said, little by little, we never met again. That, to me, has always been a very powerful way of putting it. Little by little, we never met again. And, and, and what that's like, it's like uncover, like the wind uncovering a portrait of, of emptiness or of loss, you know, with the sand blowing off it. It's like little by little, we never met again. And it's like little by little, we accept this never meeting, that we never knew our parents intimately, that they never knew us, that it was always defensive, that it was always selfish, that it was always exploitive, that it was always abusive. It was not united and then split. I mean, the defu is actually not a completely accurate phrase because there never was a family of origin in the way that we would understand it emotionally. Right, right. Okay. It's not a place to escape and, and feel safe. It's a place where you have to escape and feel safe somewhere else. Right. People didn't die because they were always ghosts. Right. I mean, it's a sixth sense scenario, right? We look back at the movie and it's like, they were always ghosts. And we had to fake the connectedness that was never there because it's not like your parents are more defensive and manipulative now than they were when you were younger. In fact, people tend to mellow with age. Your parents are less defensive now. They probably wouldn't have been able to pull off this letter 10 years ago, right? They're less consciously aggressive and defensive now or even unconsciously. So when you were younger, it was, there was even less connection with them than there is now. Right, right. And it's that loss. Oh, yeah, I remember. Right? That. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, I, was, I remember saying when I was younger, yeah, I love my parents, but I don't like them. That godforsaken phrase. I know that's a pretty common phrase, but, yeah, that's very accurate what you're saying, that there, there never was a connection. No. No, and it's not about accepting the present or making decisions about the present. It's about accepting the past and what always was, or rather what always was not, right? That's the, the long-ago ache that's from the diaper onwards, right? This long-ago ache of wanting to have a family that you could connect with, be listened to, respect, love, honor, obey. Wanting that so much, we, 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 nothing, we want nothing so much as children than to look up to and respect our parents and to admire our parents and to obey them because they are wise and right and caring, and they have credibility, and they don't abuse their authority, and they use it to our advantage, and they're delighted that we're in their lives. And we want nothing more than to love and respect our parents. And when they act in these ways that are so petty and self-righteous and destructive and abusive, 
it is just so utterly beyond heartbreaking because they rob us of the treasure of devotion and obedience to a glowing goodness that we so want to follow like a plant follows the sun when we're children. And we miss that every day when we're kids. And we have to fake and strain and pretend that it's not what it is. Or that there is something that there just isn't. And that is just, I mean, it hollows you out, right? It hollows out your heart. It's like, a, it turns it into one of those like weird African boobab tree shells that is like empty rattle inside. It hollows you out having to fake a connection that isn't there and having to obey people you don't respect. Children just they desperately want to respect their parents. It breaks their hearts when their parents act in immature and destructive ways. And then, I mean, yeah, okay, then you have to fake it with your parents and pretend that – but the heart is broken by by the the fact that you can't love and respect them because that's what you want to do the most when you're a child. I think there's, I think there's still a big part of me that wants it now, right? That well, no, that's that's no, that's that's your parents. That's your parents. That's not you. That's not you. That's not you. Your oh, parents. I mean, uh, there's no way that 20 plus years of your direct, irrevocable, and empirical experience could lead. I mean, do you still yearn to fly unaided? Do you still yearn for Santa Claus? Right. Right. So there's no way that after 20 plus years you could still yearn for something that you've never experienced, and this every indication will never ever occur. Right? Right, right. It's their holding out their belief, their hope, because they consciously or who knows, right, believe that they are worthy of respect and you're damn well not giving it to them and that makes you a bad and ungrateful child, right? Unjust, unfair, because we, we have earned respect and you're not giving it. I mean, isn't this what parents say all the time? That you owe me right. respect. Well, no, we don't. I Sorry. demand respect. Yeah, I mean, you, you earn it or shut up, right? And if you earn it, I, I, will be in, I will give it to you involuntarily. And if you demand it, it will, it's like love. If you earn it, it happens of its own accord. If you demand it, it never occurs at all. All you get is the outward show and appearance of love, patriotism or shit like that, family, fealty, fear. But no, there's no way that you have hope for your parents. There's just no way. They want you to have some kind of hope because if you have hope, then it's your fault. To some degree, at least, right? Right, right. So this part of the guilt, right? Yeah, that master guilt letter. Yeah, yeah if they, if if there's no way that they're ever going to treat you with respect, dignity, and and openness, and honesty, and vulnerability, and so on, then you can be guilt-free, right? But if you have some hope that there's something you can do, some combination of words, some I don't know, jujitsu river dance that's going to break through the defenses, then it, the onus and obligation still accrues to you, right? To find a way to make it happen. Right. right. But it's never going to happen. And that releases you, right? I, I don't wake up every day and say, I yearn to jump 30 feet straight into the air unaided. And I go out and keep trying and keep – because it's impossible, right? Right. 
So when you yearn for the impossible, it's because other people want you to feel bad for failing to achieve it. Right, right. I mean, we understand this with Christianity, right? That this idea that the thought is equal to the deed in terms of sin, that it's an impossible standard, even if you accept the more benevolent tenets of Christianity, it's an impossible standard. Well, that's just designed to make you feel guilty for failing to achieve it, not because it's a genuine standard that people want you to achieve. In fact, they make it impossible to achieve so that you will feel guilty for failing to achieve it. Right, right. And, you know, actually, I'd, I'd like to s slow down for a second, and, and I'm actually feeling kind of frustrated at the moment with myself because I've noticed a bit of a flattening in the moment of my effect. And I'm not Just sure. Just now, while we're talking, you mean? You've, while we were talking, it started when we were talking about the hope. And, and I don't know if you've experienced that, but I was getting pretty deep. And then when we started talking about the hope, I, I experienced a flattening of my affect and, and, and a bit of a, not, I still feel the sadness, but there's a twinge of numbness and a dissociation. So that's what I wanted to kind of stop there and point that out because I didn't want that to come out in. No, that's good. Ways. That's good. Now, it's interesting to me that you said we were talking about hope. Right. Because we Which, weren't. What were we talking about? Guilt. I experienced... Oh, sorry. I, uh, no, I no, it's fine. I mean, it's just that about. technically we were not talking about hope. We were talking about the opposite of hope. We were saying, there's no hope. We were talking about the absence right. of hope, the opposite of hope. We weren't talking about hope, right? Right, 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 right. Exactly. That's interesting that I framed it as we were talking about hope then. Well, it's okay. interesting in conjunction, and this is fantastic that you're picking up on all of this. I mean, way to RTR with yourself, bro. But um, Thanks. it is fascinating that you talk about hope when we're actually talking about the complete opposite of hope at the same time as your own emotional experience of yourself diminishes, right? That indicates that something is moving in to eclipse your experience, right? Right. right. Which means that... Something what, what, is... Go on. Oh, I see. So you said like something is probably just opposing itself on top of my own personal experience and and kind of hiding it from me when yeah when we i think we we got close to i mean or or we did identify what was making you feel sad which is this long ago historical ache when we accept that that our parents were not close to us when we were one or two or three years old we accept that it's the length of that empirical experience that allows us to know for certain in the future it's not going to change right 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 once we it's get that length of non-connection we give up hope for the future, right? Yeah. If it hasn't happened for 20-odd years, it's not going to happen, right? Right. Like if a girl tries to become a ballerina and she hasn't got a single role by the time she's 35, what's going to happen? She's going to say, you know what? I'm never going to be a ballerina. Never. 
Now, she's not going to feel that the second day she's trying to be a ballerina, or at least she's not going to feel it reasonably, but after 20 years of trying to be a ballerina, if it's never happened for her, if she's never got one call back, right, then to say, I'm going to be a ballerina tomorrow, starts to sound a little deranged, right? Oh, did we lose him again? Son of a... All right, we'll call him back. About that, um, let's uh, see if we can't wring another few minutes out of this somewhat inconsistent technology. <laughs> so, yeah, we were just ending up, uh, if I remember rightly, you were... <laughs> You felt a flattening of effect when we started talking about the question of, uh, of, of hope, uh, and you characterized it as hope, though I was saying that it was actually more hopelessness or an absence of hope, and that we felt that that might be yes. an, an eclipse or an intervention from uh, history uh, as to, to sort of keep you off that path, if that makes sense. Yes, can you explain a little more about... Um because you were you were using um, a ballerina metaphor when we cut out Always. the final time, <laughs> right? And and you you said that um, that uh, you said that you thought that you you might have some hope uh, for your parents, and I said that this was not your feeling, or at least in my opinion, it's not your feeling, but this in fact would be your parents' feeling because you're too intelligent and empirical a human being to think that something is about to start happening when it hasn't happened and in fact is happening to your knowledge even less and less as time goes forward that it hasn't happened for like 20 years right all right Hello. um okay oh, yeah, we were i was using the ballerina metaphor just to point out that it doesn't seem to me empirically likely that you have hope for your parents because you have uh, empirical and constant experience or an empirical and constant experience of them not providing what they should provide as parents, right? Right. So it can't be that your hope has been generated or derives from anything within your experience and your understanding, right? Yes, yes, that makes a ton of sense. So if that is the case, then we have to look we said follow the benefit, right? That's what I always say. Follow the benefit. Who benefits from you having hope in this relationship? My parents do. And, and all the, the price. Future, a tertiary effect, all the future bad people who could want to form future relationships with me. Sure, yeah, for sure. But your parents aren't particularly concerned about future bad people, but only their own immediate ego gratification, I would guess. But um, right. so so the illusion certainly serves them, right? That that and and as we said, it it is at your expense because if there's hope, then there must be something that you're doing that's not right, that you could be doing differently in order to achieve this better relationship, right? Right. Yes. Yes. Right. So let, let me let me let me give you a sort of a sort of silly example, right? So if you are. Sure my coach and I'm an opera singer or I claim to be an opera singer but I have a bad voice and no sense of tone I'm tone deaf then there's no possibility that I'm going to be an opera star right zero right however if you think that I can be an opera star it's because I have the voice and I have the pitch 
but maybe I'm just not motivated enough or maybe I just don't work quite hard enough or maybe there's some way to unlock this potential within me, right? In other words, I have all of the necessary equipment, but it's your job as a coach to figure out why I'm not achieving what I'm achieving. Right, right. And it is also the case that if you were willing to invest your resources in such a difficult opera singing student, it would be because I had extraordinary potential, right? Because there's lots of people out there who have good op voices and good pitch who will be happy to work, right? Yeah, exactly. So you must have a hugely high opinion of my capacities as an opera singer if you're willing to put up with my difficulties, my tantrums, my, you know, whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because with regards to your parents, uh, there's lots of people out there who will be happy to have a relationship with you who won't be manipulative and abusive and derogatory and difficult and like mess with your head all the time, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So if you say, well, as far as relationships go, if, if the relationship is an opera singing career, then my parents have no voice and no pitch, no sense of pitch, then clearly it's not – I mean, if I'm your opera student and I can't sing worth a damn and I get mad at you because I'm not an opera star, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. Now, if I want to retain the illusion that I can be an opera star, I'm going to want to sell you on that possibility so that you feel guilt if I don't make it, right? Right. So you're, you're going to put the responsibility onto the coach who's not coaching you. It's like, hey, I can do it, but I just can't do it with you, so there's something wrong with you as a coach. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Putting the, well, like you said in, in my first, the podcast a week ago, framing the responsibility to me as the bad one. Right. For sure, yeah. Not, I mean, if, and that if, would, if I can be the opera star, but I'm not, it's because you're a bad coach, right? You're just not doing something. Right. You're, you're telling me to do something wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious if that has a lot to do with the lingering guilt I've been feeling. Sure. Over the week, because in this break, in between these these videos, I went and took a walk, and I noticed that the feeling of flatness and uh, the lack of affect that I was feeling was very similar to the feeling of numbness that I felt in tandem with the guilt. So I'm curious if right. that, if that was similar, uh, if if that when we were talking about the uh, lack of hope, if, yeah. That was yeah. a very similar because because if if you you started off this this podcast by saying that there's a disparity or if I feel guilt that I feel there's some sort of disparity and that would make sense given if I'm if I'm able to fix them but I'm not then that would make sense and that could be the disparity is that maybe oh for sure yeah I mean at? guilt is based well let's go back to our our leveling right so. Um, yeah. They've given you a whole bunch of stuff. You've received it, and now you owe them back for whatever reason, and you're not paying it. But it's it's based on an illusion that you were on the receiving end of people who chose to have you voluntarily as a child, right? If I choose to 
have a child, then I'm taking on that responsibility. I can't blame the child then for being ungrateful or, or disobedient or whatever, right? I mean, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, I'm the one who chose to have the child. So it's based on an illusion. Our emotions fundamentally evaporate in the presence of illusion, and all we end up with is manipulation, right? So if you believe that you owe your parents something, and it's not true that you owe your parents something, then you're going to feel guilt, a kind of heavy and vaguely depressing sense of obligation. You're going to feel like it's not you who's making the decisions. You're going to feel like you're kind of like a puppet of, of somebody else's, and it's not, it's not your vitality, your joy that's driving your decisions, and there's no greed, there's no self-interest, there's just a heavy fantasy obligation along the lines of Jesus died for my sins, right? Well, there was no Jesus, and he sure as hell didn't die for your sins, and you don't have sin. Other than that, it's a perfect contract. But it's it, that that kills people's emotional response fundamentally, and I think that's the flattening because it's an illusion. You don't owe your parents anything. You owe them justice. I think like you owe everybody justice, but even that's a choice, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and and I mean now, and when you say that, the emotions coming back, but I think, yeah, I think that that guilt is something to just explore and and figure out in the ecosystem, and because I think getting through this guilt and and figuring out where it comes from will allow me, would you say, to explore my true emotions even better and not oh, get yeah. eclipsed by this. Absolutely. The um, the self attack. I mean, we don't. We, you don't see babies in the crib just waking up and punching themselves in the head, right? But at least right. I never have. Maybe in some freaked out Romanian orphanage or something. But but babies don't wake up. I mean, we don't self attack by nature. We self attack because we're we're physically attacked if we don't self attack, or emotionally or verbally attacked if we don't self attack. So you didn't take this obligation on. Because you're a masochist, you didn't take this obligation on because you just love making up obligations for yourself. Uh, uh, and you certainly didn't take this obligation on because you genuinely feel spontaneous generosity towards those who abused you. You took this obligation on because you would be viciously attacked if you didn't pretend to. So you internalized it like we all do because it's much more efficient, right? Because parents uh, who are corrupt and manipulative and controlling will always sense when you're faking it. So you have to make it real. You have to, you know, once more with feeling, you have to sell it to your parents, right? Uh, and so you just internalize it, and that's how the infection spreads. But uh, this is scar tissue, right? Guilt is the scar tissue of having been attacked as a child, uh, either existentially in the form of religion or more directly in the form of um, parents. But the reason that you feel guilty is because you were attacked as a child. It's, it's I mean, there's some stuff that's complex about these kinds of conversations, and certainly how guilt manifests and where it manifests is complex. But why we feel guilty is really quite simple. Uh, it's just that we're attacked, uh, and we, we do that as a self-defense thing, right? Right, right. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely rings a bell. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, if your parents had broken your leg, you'd be stiff on a leg, and then philosophy or psychology would be like physical rehab, right? You'd sort of fix the leg, restore the mobility, and so on, which would be painful. But you wouldn't sit there and say, 
my leg is mysteriously broken. There's something wrong with my leg. My leg is weak. It's like, no, my parents just broke my leg, and now I've got to fix it and so that I can run again, right? Right, exactly. And I think it's just understanding those external influences because they, they, we, we internalize them so well, and they start to feel almost like it's part of our personality that it's hard to remember that it all was just inflicted from outside, and we just tried to cope with and deal with it as best we could. And, and the, would you say the internalization has a lot to do with why I framed it as hope rather than hopelessness? Because oh, sure, yeah. Voice? Yeah, because your parents want you to have hope because that way you'll keep trying, you'll keep hanging around. It's the negative economics. They'll release you from guilt if you keep hanging around. They don't have anything positive to offer you, but they will release you from negative feelings uh, in the short run, like a drug, like heroin or whatever, while making it worse in the long run. But yeah, the um, the hope is uh, is exactly what keeps people in abusive relationships. I mean, we all can we are all aware of this when it comes to the woman whose husband beats her up, right? Every time after he beats her up, he brings her flowers and he promises that he's never ever 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 going to do it again. He's so sorry, right? Right, right, exactly. Sorry, there. <laughs> can you hear that? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah, I live on a pretty... Good. I thought, sorry, I thought I provoked my inner defenses. Um, no, but, yeah, exactly. Um, no, yeah, about, about the abusive wife. Yeah, that, that metaphor totally makes sense. And Yeah, once she gives up hope, she, le- once she gives up hope, she leaves the relationship, right? But the husband wants her to continue to have hope because as long as she has hope, he can continue to abuse her. Right, right. And... I mean, your parents, the, your uh, parents, your parents, for want of a better word, like abusing you. And we know that because that's what they do. Now, we say, well, maybe they don't like it, but they certainly prefer it to the alternative because anytime people do something consistently for 20 plus years, they prefer doing that, right? Yeah. And it's not like people yeah. can have jobs that they don't like and say, well, I've been to my job for 20 years, but children are optional, working is not, right? Right, right. Yeah. So your parents and, want, to, and, want to keep you around. Like the, the guy who beats up on his wife wants to keep her around so that he can continue to beat up on her. So he's going to keep dangling the hope and, well, you pissed me off and, and I don't know what the problem is and, 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 and fogging and, and all this kind of manipulative stuff to keep her disoriented, feeling guilty, down on herself, wondering what she did to cause this, trying a different approach. Well, that didn't work and feeling guilty again and fogging and nothing bad happened, but he gave me flowers and he's a really nice guy this time and out in public he's so charming and he's, you know, like she, he's just going to keep her in a tilt-a-whirl of, of confusion, right, so that he can continue to pound on her, right? Right, right, exactly. I mean, they want their whipping boy. They don't want their whipping boy to go away. And so they're going to make it that you're bad for wanting to protect yourself. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they feel an intense amount of anxiety of not having not having need to uh, to be their big boy sure I mean, sure well i mean because it raises the question then that their own con you're allied with their remnants the remnants of their conscience right within them 
and that enrages them, right? Because they did what they did because they assumed they were going to get away with it. And that's why they get so mad at philosophy and philosophers, right, or psychologists. Ah, it's the same thing that when men were beaten down on their wives, they would always get mad at the feminists, right, who would come along and say, you don't have to take that, sister. Come on, right? So they did all of this on the expectation that they would get away with it because, of course, for many, many generations, parents have, right, because the whole idea is that you have to stay with your parents for the rest of your life, which is complete propagandistic bullshit, and so – Certainly, this conversation that, like at Freedom Aid Radio, is, yeah, you don't. I mean, of course not. It's ridiculous, right? Uh, it, there's no draft called biology, and uh, you don't have to stay with your parents. And in fact, if we want a better world, and we, as say, free marketeers, think that it's important to privatize state services, isn't it also important to privatize parenting, which means that it's no longer a universal monopoly, uh, a, a closed shop union that you can't quit? That is the best way to reduce the quality of something is to make it coercive and involuntary. Uh, and so to improve the quality of families, they have to be voluntary. That's what works in the free market. That's what works with families as well. And this is how the world gets fixed. It's it's brutal, and there's no other way to do it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, it's do you live actually on a highway? Thing. I'm just uh, curious about that. Like, are you actually on a no, median no. here? Is... <laughs> Sorry, go on. No, no. I'm just waiting for the truck to, you know, <laughs> splat. Imagine, imagine sleeping through this, Steph. I really can't, but then uh, I have the uh, I have the sleep of a hyperactive Japanese squirrel, so uh, you know I I couldn't, right? So good for you. Right, right. Well, I like well, but but yeah, the uh, <laughs> no the. Uh, Hold on, let me get my train of thought. Well, it's it's interesting because yeah, that I did kind of link it to the email as to why I was feeling the guilt because for the first like 36 hours until I got the email, I was feeling just on top of the world, like just absolute exhilaration. I even like I was walking down the street uh, from the coffee shop and I just said I'm free and I just started like walking like there was a big spring in my steps. And there was nothing that could have stopped me. And then I got the email, and I felt that guilt, and I tried to journal about it, and it, it just wouldn't go away. And that's why after a week of that, I wanted to have this call because it was like – Yeah, I mean not so, some feel – like the feelings that there are, that are ours – we should uh, we should be sympathized with and we should absorb and we should accept and we should work with and so on. But there's other stuff that's just a fuck you toxic virus that we need to fight off like an infection. We just I mean anger is what right. we need for this, right? Because this is not you. This is just scar tissue from fucked up people from your history that you had no control over and that you were subject to. So those things you just fight off. Like like somebody comes into your apartment and wants to slap you around, you're going to fight them off, right? And it's the same thing with these kinds of inflicted uh, foo, toxic guilt things. I mean, you just have to fuck you, fight them off, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And the, the anger, as you know, is what really gave me the strength to do what I did a week ago. And then this guilt just kind of vanished a lot of that, or not vanished it, but eclipsed a lot of that anger. Right. And that's what they wanted because the anger was what freed me in the first place. Right. And, and guilt is a, an attempt for us to uh, – it's a story which says we have control over something we don't have control over. I mean certainly with my family, it's like, oh, shit, 